Hello and welcome everybody. Welcome. Welcome you. Welcome you. Welcome you. Hey, how are you? Great to see you. Thanks for coming back to the show. It's Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Danny Lobel, and boy oh boy, do we have a, you guessed it, exciting and jam-packed show for you today. Not only is today's guest an acclaimed author and former journalist, but he's also a listener to this show, an avid listener. The very first time I'm having a listener on the show, and boy, I'm excited for you to hear him. And I know you've waited for the episode, so I don't want to keep you waiting too much longer, but here's a message from our very wonderful sponsor. Warning, stand-up records may cause intestinal distress, fits of insane laughter, instant diarrhea, existential malaise, headaches, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, seasonal affective disorder, more headaches, pneumomono, ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis. Stand-up records should not be handled by women who are pregnant, may become pregnant, have ever been pregnant, or personally know anyone who has been pregnant. Do not consult your doctor if he's operating heavy machinery. Stand-up records is for external application only. And stand-up records is, of course, good for a few laughs. So remember that standuprecords.com for the world's finest comedy CDs, DVDs, and merchandise. That's standuprecords.com. The revolution will be hilarious stand-up records you know you love them and they have some of the great great comics of our time recorded and available for you to listen to make sure you go and pick up an album today hey you might be new to the show and you might be wondering how do i get season one guess what you can buy it it's available just go to the website moderndayphilosophers.net and you'll see in the top right corner there's a little image that says get season one and it's only, it works out to less than a dollar an episode. I think it's like 88 cents or something like that an episode. And, uh, and you can support the show that way. It's inexpensive and fun way to support the show and hear how it all began. Please go and get your copy of season one today. And uh, you can also donate. You can donate to the show. Why not? There's a donate button. Give back. It's nice to give back. And I appreciate it. It keeps me running. So there's that. And one last piece of business to get out of the way. I have started putting out YouTube content. I said I would do it, and I've finally done it. I started doing a show where I interview YouTube stars on YouTube, and I hope you guys will check it out. It's called Danny LaBelle's YouTube YouTube Show. Uh, my first episode's already up with a guest you've heard on this show, Jesse Conweiler. And it's great. I love it. I think it came out really well. And uh, I hope you like it, too. And if you like it, I hope you share it, and I hope it goes viral, and I hope things change for me. Because, uh... I need things to change. I need things to pick up. And I believe they will. I have faith and I'm putting out content. And that's my, that's my revenge. That is my great revenge. I'm going to just keep on putting out more and more and more content. And you might be thinking, well, some revenge, Danny. I haven't put out an episode in a while. Well, guess what? I've been recording a lot of episodes, a lot of great episodes. And I can't wait for you to hear them. They're going to be coming out real soon. And hopefully with some kind of regularity. And without keeping you waiting anymore, that's right, without further ado, except for the intro song, I give you my talk with the wonderful Cash Peters. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. All right. Alrighty. I'm sitting here with Cash Peters in my living room. And I guess the best thing would be to, first of all, tell people how we met and how this came to be, because it's not the usual uh, way that I wind up with a guest on a podcast, and it's kind of cool and exciting. No, and I'm like a giggly little girl, and I feel terrible. I, I'm being so unprofessional, but I'm just <laughs> in the company of somebody whose work I love. And, you know, these days, because I actually started out as a comedy writer when I was really, really young, 
I am jaded in that kind of way that I very little makes me laugh because nothing strikes me as new anymore. I can watch a whole episode of a, what's considered a great sitcom. It doesn't mm -hmm. make me laugh because I go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how they're going to do that and that's why they said that. And it's just I pull the, the threads of it apart. It's like and being a magician and uh, yeah, it's you know, got to be terrible and, to go to a yeah, magic show. I know, it's show. hard. Yeah. My father's a magician, actually. Really? And, yeah, yeah. And so um, uh, basically with this was like uh, I, I heard you for the first time and you actually made me laugh consistently. And uh, I, I offered or asked, I guess asked, could I, could I come on here? Um, which is the silliest, girliest thing to do. But I, I'm so honored to be here. I'm honored to have you here. Oh. And, and it's cool that I, you wrote to me and then you also did Kelly Carlin's show. Yes. Been on this show, a good friend of mine. And uh, I listened to that and I really enjoyed it. And I said, all right, this will be the first time I have a listener, I believe, who's not uh, a comedian friend of mine on the show. Right. But I mean, I, I, the funny thing is that I, over the course of my career, I've interviewed just princes and kings and pop stars and everybody. So let's and, talk about that career a little bit, because pe let people know you were a, a journalist. Well, initially I was a comedy writer. And in, in the UK? In the UK. Um, I, I was at school and I was about 15. And I began writing. You basically, back in the day, you could just send scripts off. Mm -hmm. And if they performed them, if you, or they did your jokes on TV, then you got paid. And so I used to cycle to school, and on the way to school, I would write jokes, and then I'd send them in to not, not like crappy little shows, but like primetime shows. I mean, I had real huge ambitions. Like what? Uh, there was, well, there's a show in, in Britain called The Two Ronnies, which was on for like 15 years or so. I don't know how long it was on. And um, it was primetime Saturday night entertainment. Over here, nobody watches TV on a Saturday night, but over there, well, Saturday night is... Saturday Night Live. Well, here. yeah, but they come home drunk yeah. from a bar at that point. I'm, I'm talking about nobody watches like 8.30 on a Saturday night, oh, generally, yeah, yeah. Sp generally speaking. Uh, but in Britain, okay. they do. This is like you put all your best shows on a Saturday night. And so this show was on a Saturday night, and I wrote for it, and my stuff appeared on it. They accepted it. And they'd write back and say, well done. Uh, let's have some more of your stuff. Nobody wow. had any idea I was 15. And then I wrote for it. There was a, a comedy duo called Morecambe and Wise, uh, who had a fabulous writer called Eddie Braben. Uh, and this guy wrote all their stuff for years and years and years. Then he had a heart attack. So being both a fan and sympathetic, but also a complete chancer, I thought, here's my opportunity to write for Morecambe and Wise. So I write wait, scripts. Wait, wait, wait. Is this the guy who wore a fez on television? No, that's Tommy Cooper. Uh, he died of a heart attack on, on, the sh on his show, yes, right? Yes, he actually died. Well, and, and also, like, because um, it's everything to them. Like, um, Tommy Cooper kind of had to die on stage because that was his life. I mean, it was life on stage. Um, Benny Hill... Um, they, you know, he had a show that ran over here, but it was like huge in Britain, then huge over here. Mm -hmm. They took his show away, and it was his life. It's all he had. He wasn't married. He didn't have a family. It's all he had. And he goes home, and they find him dead, like weeks later, just sitting in an armchair staring at a television. He has no furniture, no carpets, no nothing. It's incredibly it, sad. It is incredibly sad, wow. but it's their life. Um, and so Morecambe and Wise were kind of dependent on this guy, Eddie Braven, and I thought... He's had a heart attack. Poor guy. Get straight in there and send scripts off. And so, yeah, I was a very callous bastard, John. Oh, he was a writer. I misunderstood. He was the okay. writer. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he had his own little radio shows and things, but he was a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, just one of those minds 
some people come along. They you know, I, actually, I class you as one of those. You just say something, and it's not what other people oh, would say. It's, it's nice, just yeah. your own particular authentic style, uh, and that's funny when the person is a funny person. Um, so he was one of those people. He wrote for them. I wrote, sent scripts off, and they wrote back and said, "Great, these are really good. Please send us more." Okay. I was. I don't know, 16, 17, I forget the age, but I was really very, very young. And, um, and then I sent them off, and then he recovered, which was a real blow. <laughs> I mean, he's a great guy, but it was a real blow. So I never got on Malcolm and Wise, but I, I wrote for all these radio shows and TV uh-huh. shows, and nobody ever knew it was me. And so how did you turn this, or how did you parlay this into a career in journalism? Well, I did. Uh, truthfully, I didn't. It was my ambition to be a, a – I tried stand-up, and I, I was okay at that initially and then I kind of I thought you know really I'm not going to be any good at this long term this takes a certain kind of mind a certain kind of discipline I don't have that and so um my parents said get a regular job you know that thing go get a regular job and so I did and I was, was stamping forms for a living I just stamped forms for like eight years really yeah I was just you, so you just by hand you had yes, a stamp in physically your hand stamped forms for, and for you a, just a form you'd slide it underneath yeah, and stamp, and it. stamp it and I did it for, uh, for how many a, hours a day did you do that for eight hours a day for eight years for eight years and that's a surefire recipe for arthritis. But, a but carpal what tunnel what, anyway, right? For what? Carpal tunnel syndrome, right? Off a carpal tunnel. But I didn't. Yeah. It, it was a, a way of dealing with the public. And um, I, I was like in a public office for the government. And so all these people would line up. And it was like today. It's like really sunny out. And if you sit in the sun, you start sweating and you're really hot. And so they would sit by this window, all lining up to see me. Mm-hmm. And sweating and angry because it's a public office for the government. Where else? Are you, who else can you shout at? Post office people, government people—they can't do anything back. So everybody would come in and shout at me. And um, I learned. So it was more than just stamping forms. Well, you were I had to deal with people and then a... stamp their forms. I mean, See, get... in my head, I picture you in a basement. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Yeah. No, no, but they would somebody come to shows me. up with a giant pile of forms. <laughs> There's more forms for you. Like out of out of Brazil. No, no, no. But but I would actually um, uh, I, w- I would sit at this public desk and I have a long line right out the door of people. It's like having a post office with only one clerk and thirty-five people in the line and if you're last in line and there's one guy arguing with the person in the front you're going to get really pissed and that's what happened everybody was angry with me um but what happened was that i learned how to deal with people particularly angry people and what you do is if, if somebody starts yelling at you you don't alter your tone of voice you don't argue with them you just don't alter your tone of voice you keep on going oh yeah okay and you agree with them go, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Or, yeah, you know, you're right. And if you keep on doing that, they, everybody calms down. And then you go, right, this is the public, public office solution to everything. When they've, when they've had the, melt, the meltdown, you go to them and go, okay, I will deal with this. You're absolutely right. I will deal with this. And I would walk off with my forms and, and come back and, and just stamp them and everything would be fine. I did that with all these angry people. And if you do that in life, if you just, instead of going, no, it was you, you're the bastard who said that. Don't do any of that. Just go, wow, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. right. (laughs) And oddly, people calm down immediately. They only want to be heard. They only want to be felt that they're being acknowledged and that they're right. You can do that in absolutely any situation. I've I've told so many people that. Don't rise to them. Don't, Don't rise to the bait. Don't take it. Just go... Wow, I never thought of that. It's just a matter of swallowing your pride, right? That's all it is. It's just yeah. uh, you, you mean, have to be able to do that. You've got to have... Uh, personality types, I don't think they can do that. Well, because they see red. 
and they're immediately mm. upset. Uh, I tend to reason things out and I go, psychologically, what's the solution to this? And I don't have much of an ego. I guess maybe if you're a performer, you have to have kind of like a, a big ego to get through this. I don't have much of an ego and I don't have much of an investment in being right. I just want the thing to go well and to just go and have my lunch. I just, I'm very interested in eating cake and drinking tea. And anything that gets me to that point... I'm British. Yeah, I know, I'm British. But it's true. Anything that gets me to that point and over any humps is, yeah. is very worthwhile to me. So I don't really care about the stuff in between so long as the, ultimately I end up eating cake and, and, and drinking tea. So you're stamping forms. So I'm stamping forms. You're, and you're then, eating cake, you're drinking tea. Right, but, I, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you can imagine that I'm actually really bored doing this because uh, I'm, I'm sitting in court some days as well. I'm in, a, I'm in a, like a legal situation, so I'm in court and I'm falling asleep and I'm writing books and, and I got reported for writing a book uh, or trying to write a book. And so... So um, then some, one day somebody was really rude to me and it wasn't a member of the public, it was a member of staff. Somebody who didn't have my education, somebody who was just a bully. And I thought, I'm leaving. Just like that, I'm, I'm done. And I, I don't, you know, to me, there's a lot to be said for just getting to a point where you go, I'm done and moving on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, slam the door behind you and just walk away. And I've done that in many, many situations and it's, it leads to a bit of a struggle but um, something always works out. And that's what happened. I wrote this book, uh, left the civil service, the, the government office, and uh, I went doing the rounds promoting this book. And somebody walks up to me and says, ever wanted to be on the radio? I go, all right, okay. <laughs> and they just give me a gig and they send me this to... This all sounds very British to me. You're walking around with a book. I picture it in Cambridge or something. <laughs> Oh, chap, would you like to be on the radio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget you're British sometimes. You actually know this. But but people do that. People go, have you ever fancied being on the radio? (laughs) That doesn't happen in America. But it happened to me several times. Right. I, I, yes, I was uh, on the People have said to you, would you fancy being on the No, no, maybe they didn't use the word fancy quite so readily, but, but they did. Like, I was at, um, I was going to the gym. I joined this gym when I, I mean, I'm not an exercise guy at all. So, I, but I thought the gym membership was free for six months. So mm-hmm. I thought, free, I love. I'm a huge fan of free. So I'll go to the gym and I'll join this thing. And at one time, I'm coming down and I meet somebody who I've just seen in the gym. I go, hi. And he goes, oh, this is my friend. He's a, um, he's a producer at uh, ABC. And the guy goes, seriously, no word of a lie. He goes, would you like to be on the, uh, on, on, on the TV? And what? I go, doing what? You know, and he I got to get to a better gym. you're hanging out completely the wrong gym but it's like yeah but he goes well would you like to be on tv and i go um doing what and he goes well you just be like a reporter on screen anyway i said you know that was a this was in america yeah this was on crunch outside crunch gym on sunset of crescent heights and so he go and i go um okay yeah no uh, yeah okay and he goes and then we turned out i didn't have a green card so i couldn't take the job so i didn't do it uh, because i'd only just arrived i mean i've been here like two weeks right and then um but that's how i got my travel show a guy just calls up and says would you like to meet me because we'd like to give you a tv show so this is fascinating so you had this travel show and you went all around the world yeah and, uh, well, I'll let you tell it. Well, no, they, they, they um, call me and go, uh, we've heard you on the radio. Would you like a, t- a TV show? And It sounds like you've had a very charmed life. Yeah, yeah. And, all right, okay, here's the thing. This is the most fascinating thing of all to me, is that I didn't want any of this at all. What I want is completely different to any of this. And what I've noticed is, you know, there are some people who have a great career, 
but are really unhappy with their lives, or they have a terrible relationship, or they have a great relationship but can't get a fucking career together for the to save their life. That's me. <laughs> You're happy in love, but you can't get a career. But no, but oh, they they have tons of money. These are the ones that get me. They have millions in the bank. Oh, that's not. But me. they cannot find love, or there's always one part of you. Thing missing and, and and one part of your life that doesn't work right and your job seems to be to solve that issue in that one area of your life everything else goes swimmingly this was mine so i have had so many opportunities so many people just would sit me down and go like producers would sit me down and go um we'd like you to uh, be in this show or please host this show and i've said no to almost everything because i don't want to do this stuff this isn't for me. It's for other people. I, you know, don't don't try and stand in somebody else's shoes. So you're financially okay. Yes, and uh, and you feel fulfilled creatively, I suppose, or or you don't feel fulfilled creatively. You, you you feel fulfilled in terms of having done the work you did. You don't feel the need to do it anymore. No, but it was. But what I did was, and I, you know. <sighs> It's very hard to explain simply because I did something differently in my teens that other people don't do. And I notice other people don't do it. It's not that I'm special. It's just that I went the other way to everybody else. And I decided that I would do what made me happy, but not long-term projection of what made me happy, what makes me happy today. And so I would go, if something, if you can come up to me and say, hey, let's go and do this, I check in with myself. I go inside and go, do I want to do this? And if I get a kind of feedback of no... We're done. I don't want to do it. And I've done that all my life, whether it's things to do with health, to do with food or um, activities. Sounds or, perfectly logical. Yeah, but nobody else does it. Right. Everybody goes, they get a kind of gleam in their eye like, oh, I could have a Maserati. No, I don't have up. that. I just am always like... You don't want a Maserati. You oh, don't want a Maserati. You actually could, don't want one. I could pay my bills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, you, know, you just sell it to pay your bills. But you know, you, basically, you want a Maserati because of marketing, because the other guy has one, because of of, 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 a, of an aura around it. I mean, truth is, you don't actually want a Maserati. And what I got, what I realized very early on was, what I wanted was not what everybody else wanted. I wanted to be healthy, number one, uh, and I wanted to live broadly, not necessarily long, not necessarily a, you know, a ton of years, but I wanted to live broad, and so uh, I wanted experience. Right, which means travel and so, so on. So you got to travel. You went on this travel show. You did the tra- no, you did, I, did, you I did didn't travel, travel back in England. Show. I did because my father gave me this. This you know, you've seen that there are millions of them now, but there weren't millions at the time of self help books. Right. You know these self help books that say visualize what you want, and I thought, what a load of bullshit this is. But I'm willing to try it because it sounds fun. Yeah, so, I love George Carlin's joke about them. They're not self-help if it's from somebody else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. But they, they, they would say, well, no, help yourself um, and do this, these, these protocols and you would uh, get what you want. And I didn't really know what I wanted, but I knew I wanted to travel and have this experience of going around the world and stuff. So what I did was I used the visualization technique, right? And the way the visualization works, according to these books, is you ha- if you... If instead of just wanting something, you have to already have it in your head, feel it, smell it, live it, and then it becomes yours, right? This is the weird thing, the way visualization works. So I was in the civil service at this particular point, and I go, uh, well, I want to travel. and I've never traveled. I've never been outside the country. Uh, I know what I'll do. I'll do do this visualization technique. So every Sunday for four weeks, 
I packed uh, a, a suitcase with books. In fact, two suitcases. What, like a little thingy, no thingy, with books. And I went down to Heathrow Airport as though I was going away, as I was travelling. And I'd lug these heavy suitcases through the terminal. Uh, and you could, you could kind of do this back then. You can't really do it now. People will arrest you. Mm-hmm. But I'd go up to the desk, and just when I was about to check in, I would peel away. And I did this every Sunday for four weeks. Yeah, be on a terrorist watch list right now. <laughs> I know. Right now I'd be arrested, but but that's what I did. And um, I, uh, um, within about three weeks after that, maybe, I, I don't know, time condenses everything, but but let's say it's three weeks. It might have been like two months or so, but let's say it felt like three weeks. Um, I was offered a job as a travel reporter. And so, I got to travel the world at somebody else's expense, which is the key thing, because you've got to do it so for free. So where'd you get to go? Let's name some places. Um, I got to go, well, I, anywhere I basically want. I came to America a lot. They, they were because Britain is fascinated with America. They think you have absolutely everything until they've lived here for about five years, and then you realize that you know Britain has a lot too. Yeah. But but yeah, but they they um, they want to come here, so I was sent here a lot. And uh, but there was also this great contest they used to run on the radio station called Where in the World. It was, you know, like that Matt Lauer thing, but this is before then. It was called Where in the World, and they would send all their reporters in their news department to somewhere mysterious like they would just go and the audience wouldn't know where they were but you'd leave clues every day so they'd call you from the breakfast show and go hi give us your clue today and so you give them your clue and then the audience would call in and try to guess what where you were now most of the reporters i worked with were like pretty stupid because they would just give a couple of clues and the audience would call in and go, you're in Reykjavik and they go, yeah, ding, 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 you win. And I thought, hang on a minute. And I was in the Vienna woods. I was in a castle in the Vienna woods, right? Uh-huh. All expenses paid. And I thought, if I make these clues absolutely impregnable, I'll be here for days. <laughs> and I don't know how long I was there, but every morning I'd be on the breakfast show and they, they'd go, okay, give us your clue, Cash. And I'd go... A horse and carriage for three leads me to a tree. It's nothing to do. I, mean, I want to stay in this room. Yeah, I want to stay in this room. <laughs> so, so my, my clues are absolutely impenetrable. My clues so, will leave you doomed. <laughs> yes, so, so it was really funny. And I did it for days and I got free food in this hotel in the Vienna Woods and it was absolutely amazing. And so it was stuff like that. I did this kind of travel you just for those. You out how to milk the system. That was my introduction to travel. It was just all expenses paid. So two questions. Yes. One you you mentioned so your your challenge is not financial your challenge has not been getting work are you implying that it's for you it's the love life or the relationship that went wrong that you, that what's the thing that um, you're have you have oh to no chase like that my massive thing was and it's a lifelong um, problem I mean just people do people really want to hear about that I mean I'm happy to talk about I it I do but, oh, okay I'll tell you just you just you um, my family life was always disastrous. You know, I never had the support or love, I didn't think, of, of, of my family. And so I always was convinced that I was, uh, the, the career, which wasn't a career, it was just a, a series of chance happenings. Oh, a series that, of vacations. Yeah, a series of vacations and chance <laughs> happenings where people would just say, oh, you did that really well, now come and do this show. Right. Uh, with an effortless stuff. But it was all a distraction from what the actual problem was. And when I came to write books about this stuff, I was trying to write travel books, but this all crept in. 
that my main problem was the 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 parental one and the and the, and the family one. But I started reading your book, uh, Why Your Life Matters. Right. And the forward, the 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 introduction at the beginning of the book is a quite endearing story about you and your mom. Yeah, and my mother was a great uh, passer on of philosophy and passer off passer on of Reader's Digest articles. You they would arrive in the mail every week. You know, oh, I read this. You should do this. My mother was great at that, but um, there was always that feeling of uh, I could not get their attention. I just mm -hmm. couldn't get their attention. I would call up from college where I was deeply miserable, and I would go, hi, and they'd go, there's a soap opera on television. Could you call back? <laughs> and I, I would say, but they're not real people. I'm a real person. I'm a right, real right. son that you have in a terrible situation, and you'd rather watch fake people in terrible situations. Yeah. Why would you? <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I said, or record it. Yeah. Or record the bloody... No, no, we want to see it really happen. So I never had their attention, and it all went on to my brother, mm -hmm. who uh, was as cute as pie when he was young. Uh, he was uh, just... He was regular. And where, what's, what's he doing now? I have no idea. We don't, don't talk My family just went. My family just disappeared. You just cut them off? No, they cut me off. They cut you off? Yes. Why? Well, they already had when I was very young. I mean, really. I mean, they didn't speak to me for months on end. But sometimes. they didn't do it officially back then. No, they're doing it officially now. I got an email at some point saying, from my father saying, we stopped loving you when you were 32. Ouch. And that was it. And then my 32 years, though. That's not bad. 32 years of love? Well, no, it wasn't 32 years of love. It was 32 <laughs> years of we're leading up to the fact that eventually I'm going to stop loving you. And Why did uh, they stop I, loving you at 32? Because I'm gay. Mm -hmm. Really? So they took it yeah. that hard? The moment, the moment I came out, uh, uh, there wasn't an announcement on the day, but I remember my father going, uh, we were at the sink. Uh, my mother had just died, right? So we, my mother had just died, which isn't the best time to come up to your father, like the next day. Mm -hmm. He's all kind of dealing with the whole wife thing. And so I'm at the sink and I'm just helping him wash dishes and stuff. And, he's, and, and I said, you know what was great about mother? She was so good about the gay thing. Mm -hmm. And he goes, what gay thing? So he didn't figure he, it out. She, no, well, I, uh, I, I think he did. Uh, but anyway, so he goes, but that's terrible. And he crumples at the same. I remember him to this day crumpling at the same, like, that's terrible. Mm. And so there was no announcement at that time. But then years later, he writes back and says, you know, we stopped loving you at 32. And that was when I came out to him. And then my brother wrote to me, because in, in, in that kind of environment, which is like in the country, it's no different mm. to like the Midwest over here, really. Mm -hmm. You're in the country. They equate... Uh, being gay with sodomizing children. Of course you do. That's the next thing. Everybody comes a, becomes a pedophile because they're gay. It's interesting because my perception of the UK is that they're very forward-thinking. They're very accepting of, uh, you know. Exactly. And I think my that, uncle is transgender in Cambridge, and you know, he, what year? he's very comfortable there. What? What year was he very comfortable there doing being transgender? He still is. He's been no, there no, for many years. No, no. But what year did, was he like looking back? Uh, when oh, did he start doing that? In the seventies. Oh, really? And nobody cared? Don't know if nobody cared, but I think, uh, you know, I've been out to visit him and been to his his meetings with the ladies, uh -huh. uh, the quote-unquote ladies. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, I mean, they go out to, the, I don't know, the, every, we walk around Cambridge and everybody says hello to him uh, in his female name and everything and yeah, well, I mean, seems I like a very friendly progressive kind I of... I never uh, had any problem uh, with other people. I was never picked on. Uh, as an adult for being gay or anything, but I mean, I, never. But 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 except by my parents, by by, by my family, and so. my, my my they just seem to think. Well, we've got like my my brother has two children, 
or he had two children when mm-hmm. I knew him. I think he has more now. But he had two children. And um, I was staying in his house at the time because I had a whole kind of divorce problem going on. And, and, I, and I remember I left thinking, they want me to go because they think uh, we've got two small boys. He's gay. One plus one equals two. We better get rid of him. And it sounds my, like it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you're gay. It seems like they didn't trust you in general, right? Like no, it, I don't if know. you love and trust somebody, then it doesn't matter if they're gay. Well, right? yeah, well, yeah, but now we're being logical. But that, that a lot of logic came into this. There seemed to be like a uh, we need to get him out of the house. And so I told my father uh, that I said, oh, you know, I have this terrible feeling that this was actually the underlying motivation for this, mm-hmm. and uh, that we've got two children, so we mustn't let a gay person near them. I don't know. I mean, we, it's never mm-hmm. talked about, but that's what I, I felt. And he goes, yeah, but I wouldn't let you near my children either. And you are his child. And I said, that's exactly what I said. I said, but I am your child. And he just storms out the room and slams the door. And, and I remember that time. And then my brother wrote to me when I got here, like my, the next birthday, I think I got a thing that I thought was a birthday email. Mm-hmm. And it just said, as far as I'm concerned, you're dead. And uh, I have no respect for you. Um, and then made a little joke and it was gone. And you didn't have a good relationship with him before? Oh, no, we had a fantastic relationship for 32 years. My, really? My, my brother and I were very, very close. It's my parents we ha- I had a problem with, it, but they loved him because he went down the route, the corporate route, he got a regular job, he got a regular family. You could, mm-hmm. you could see the product of their efforts in this guy because he became very nuclear. He became... Um, a child-bearing machine. I mean, you know, a child, he and his wife. Um, but they'd look at me and go, he's writing for television. He's, uh, you know, doing movies and things. And he's, what, what is this guy? So this he is just... all very incredibly hurtful to you. And, and Yeah, and, I was very, very hurt. And to this day, you're saying this is the thing. Well, a lot of my, because we get back to the same point we're talking about, that, you know, what is your thing? Mm-hmm. What is your thing? You may be brilliant in some areas and, and everything works Effortlessly, you may be brilliant in some, in some ways, but, but, <laughs> but you're gonna have to chase something. <laughs> you're gonna, ch- yeah, but oh my god, we have a hit here. I, I can see it, but but it, the, <laughs> the way it works is that um, you have one area that is just completely fucked up and doesn't work. And this was mine, and I could not get my family's attention or endorsement or encouragement. And it made me in every other, and this was the thing what it did was the only way I could get their attention was by shocking them. Uh-huh. Saying something, doing something, writing something that was made them go, bloody hell! Mm. What, what, what our son wrote that, and it's, it got their attention momentarily, albeit not in a positive way. Right. And, and I only realized this was the life lesson. I only realized years later, five years ago, right? So it took a very long time uh, for that. I'd spent my life in almost every situation. Finding the parent figure, which is often the boss or superior, somebody above yeah. me, and annoying the shit out of them <laughs> by defying them or... I mean, not deliberately going out to annoy them, but, but, right. but, but being the same way towards them that I was with my parents, shocking them, saying things, doing things that would get their attention, but not necessarily in a good way. And then I suddenly thought, oh, my God, this is a projection of my entire childhood. And I just stopped. And now I'm quite, I mean, I've always been friendly, but now I've really, I'm, I'm friendly without <laughs> an agenda. You people off. I'm not a scumbag. No, but I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm friendly without an agenda now, without that mm-hmm. secret thing of, uh, if, you, if, you, if we're like here and we're just talking, it's fine. But if you were my boss 10 years ago, not, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it would be like, I'm trying to find now a way in. 
with you. I'm trying to find a way that would just annoy you. And, and I went to therapy. I couldn't figure out why everybody was annoyed with me all the time. I had no idea. And then it hit me. It was, I was still trying to get my parents projected encouragement, endorsement, uh, attention, and now I don't need it. And, and what I, happened that you don't need it? Just the recognition that you were chasing it? Uh, I do believe that what you chase flees. It's one of the rules in my book, actually, is that what you chase flees, whatever it is. If you chase money, it will run away from you. It's only when you don't want something that it actually comes. So um, I ceased to worry about it. I ceased to make it an issue in my life. But also, one of the travels I did was to Brazil. Uh, I, that was going to be my second question. Was Well, it came, all came out of Brazil. I mean, I actually I went in this troubled boy and mm. came out a, an adult who sort of understood life. And I thought, oh, okay. My second question was going to be that you'd mentioned beforehand uh, that you went to Brazil and since then... You don't want to work anymore. So <laughs> I've worked incredibly hard since I went to Brazil. I just haven't done what I used to do. And, and I realized that in, in every interview I did uh, for, for work, everything I went around doing, writing, there was an element of antagonism about it. There was an element of wheedling and kind of needling and let's just find out what your foibles are. I'm Can you recognize it now in other people when you see oh, it? Oh, absolutely. I see it in journalists all the time. Uh -huh. I mean, you see journalists and, they're, and they're, 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 again, especially the dick at the end of the news. Uh -huh. they're, they're going around. <laughs> Although, you know the ones who get me the most are the ones who are the consumer campaigners. And they're running around with secret cameras trying to get a guy who's uh, stealing coupons from a shop. And they, they go and confront him and go, yeah. Mr. X, you are been stealing and that little guy who does that is feeling great about himself right. look at me being big all of a sudden actually what's happening is that <laughs> he's just living out the trauma of his childhood and, and finally getting to be important yeah and i see that yeah i see it in journalists all the time i listen to them on the radio i watch them on tv and i got my head in my hands going i know exactly what you're doing i know because i've been there i've done that and then i i just went to brazil and everything changed and i i came back from brazil so from what this, happened in brazil i was doing my tv show and i noticed as i was doing my tv show we, we thought we shot 32 episodes in like 15 months it was a really quick turnaround to traveling around the world everywhere and i was going steadily deaf and by the time I came back from Brazil, uh, from, by the time I came back from the last shoot, which I think was maybe in Bermuda or something, or Barbados, something like that, uh, I couldn't hear anything. I was 96% deaf in this ear and about 60% deaf in my right ear. And so if my phone would ring, I couldn't hear it. If people knocked at the door, I didn't hear them. And it became this thing. And I thought, well, you know, obviously I've worn headphones for. 30 years. Mm -hmm. Of course I'm going dead. That's what happens. I, you know, um, taking Pete Townsend. Off right and, now. Yeah, take your headphones off. Um, <laughs> but Pete, uh, Pete Townsend and everybody, you know, Phil Collins. Yeah. Uh, they just have damaged eardrums, basically. And so um, I was at a wedding. And this woman was really drunk at this wedding. And she sits, she just flops down next to me. And goes, hi. This is a wedding in Brazil. No, this is a wedding here. This is before I, Brazil ever came up. This is, I was deaf. I came back from the sh from doing the TV show and I was deaf, and this woman flops down to me, uh, flops down next to me at the wedding and goes, "Hi, hi, I, yeah." And she told me this stuff about her husband dying and she was drunk because she was a widow and blah blah blah. And then she, she's handing out a glass all the time, trying to collect wine from any waiter that will pass us with a bottle. She's uh -huh. steadily more drunk. And then she gets up to dance. She's going to get dance, and and she goes to me. Um, 
uh, and she said, where are you going next on your travels? I go, well, I'm going to Venezuela or something, whatever I had in my, my head. Uh, Argentina, I think I was going to go and learn tango and write a book about that. That's what I was going to do. And she goes, no! She points at me across the room and she goes, no! Go to Brazil, my dear. Brazil! And then she staggers off and you know, I'm going, why? And she goes, for your ears. And I've not told her about my ears. What? That's crazy. She goes, for your ears and points at me. So I go, she said, there's a staggering healer there, this amazing healer guy. And, and, and so I look him up. I've never even heard of this guy, John of God, before. Yeah, I'm not a religious guy, particularly, and stuff. And so I then um, book a flight down there, have no idea what's going to happen, zero. And I go through this process of like 12 days. It's just basically meditation and sitting around and there's some kind of spooky thing at this place. It's full of energy and you know, who knows what the hell's going on. And uh, I'm complaining the whole time. I come here, I pay my money, I've not got my hearing back. Right. You know, it's a center for getting your hearing back. And uh, I got my hearing back fully at the end of about 10, 12 days. So I came home and I wrote this book about it, about what happened and, and, and so on. And then I go deaf again. But it's how long did it take you to write the book? Six months. So six it's months. Not it's, not, it's not the one you've, you're reading. The one, the Why You Life Matters. It's called a little book about believing. How many books have you written in total? I'm thinking around 13, 14. I can't remember. Wow, it's a lot of books. So I haven't been idle. I've been doing stuff. But right. um, but what happened was that I, I I did this book, a little book about believing, and put it out there. Everybody turned it down. Nobody wanted it. It's too creepy. So weird. Too dangerous. Nobody wants this stuff. And um, so I put it out myself. I started my own publishing company and put it out. And it sold all over the place, sold all over the world and, and, and whatever. So that then started the, on this other track. And I realized that all that old journalistic stuff I used to do where I was trying so hard to please and try, trying so hard to get attention and be the guy. And get free hotel rooms. And get free. I had to pay for Brazil. It's the first <laughs> hotel I'd paid for in 30 years. I paid for Brazil, and um, I realized that all that crap that I'd, I'd experienced before um, was simply to get my parents' attention, and I didn't need it anymore. And I came back calmer, and I'd lost my hearing back again, though. My hearing had gone again. Uh, but I How'd you get it back the next time? Well, this, was the th this is how life works. This, this is really how life works, is that because I didn't do that thing of, oh, I'm ambitious, I must get this job, I want that Maserati, or I want to be on TV. I didn't do any of this stuff. I just let life flow through me. Instead of chasing it, I let it come to me and be guided by my own direction, my own natural destiny or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I just let this happen. And so when I went deaf again, it was like, oh, my God, that's annoying. One, I've just been to Brazil and paid all this money. But two, I'm writing this book about how I got my hearing back. <laughs> and it's gone. And what happened was that I um, set about this whole thing of finding out what causes deafness in people. Because a lot of old people are deaf. And, and the doctors say, well, it's just aging. You know, and I'm thinking, well, I'm of a certain age. And I've blasted my ears with headphones for years. Maybe this is my future. But the thing is, I had heard properly. When I was in Brazil, I got my hearing back 100%. I could hear everything for the first time in years. And so I realized that, in fact, this may not be what everybody says. I mean, if you've got eardrum problems, then you've got eardrum problems. Mm -hmm. You're fucked. But if, if, if you're not, and if you've got some kind of blockage going on or some reason that your body is cutting out your hearing, maybe we can find out what that is. 
And so that's what my books then became about, is it became about finding out what this is and why you have hearing problems. And maybe people just didn't want to hear what the world was trying to tell them. Exactly. Is that and what I, it was? I didn't want to hear, more to the point. I didn't want to hear the lessons that were being bombarded with me all, all those years. So I, you I mean, psycho psychosomatically shut your ears down? Yes, yeah, my ear, your ears shut down. There's a book called Messages from the Body, which is fantastic, which lists every ailment you'll ever have, and it just tells you what the psychological and emotional reason for it is. Uh, I think it's about 300 bucks on Amazon or something. It's a really expensive book, but it's fantastic. And it was like, you know, just shutting out the world. Just don't want to hear. I'm done. So it sounds like you have uh, figured out the problem with the family to the to, well, your, they, to the best of your ability. Uh, uh, you, but they're so pissed off with me that they'll never speak to me again. So but, I mean, you figured it out for yourself. Yes. And, I, and the thing is that what you've got to do is you, you can't, I can't get their forgiveness. And we think that we're just going to get forgiveness by trying harder. And that doesn't work. Anything you try too hard to do will always go wrong. I mean, I've forgiven, it, I've forgiven them within myself. So I, what more can you do? Well, there's the weakness. Because so long as they're alive, you're convinced that you can get them to say that. We forgive you too. Let's just have a group hug and get over it. Because I'm a big get over it. Thing. If, we, if we had mm -hmm. an argument now, as long as you're a nice guy and I like you, we'd be over it at some point. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. I feel out. like I missed a great opportunity to have an argument and get off scot-free. <laughs> I could have taken you to a free hotel somewhere. <laughs> we'd have had a great time. But it's, like, it, but it's true. It's like, you know, you, you can get over it. So what's that piece then for you? That everybody's chasing the one piece. I think it's a, it has to do with work, right? Well, just when you think that life can't get any worse, I had a midlife crisis. Because I'd written, you know, when I was young, I didn't have ambitions, but I had dreams, which were kind of in the shape of, you know, I'd love to go and see the pyramids in Egypt or I'd, just things you'd like to do. Right. Because of that traveling stuff I did, I got taken around by our own private guide. We had our own private guide who took me down the tombs on my own, shown around. It's, I mean, it's magical. The whole thing is magical. But I realized that once that searching was over, every single one of my dreams was gone. I'd written the books I wanted to write. I'd been to the places I wanted to go to. I'd, I, I'd done everything I wanted to do. I'd had a TV series, which was kind of a little thing. I'd had a dream I'd had when I was in my teens. I'd written for television. Everything I'd, was done. And I remember the day I was in the shower one morning and thought, wow, I have absolutely no dreams left. Zero. I mean, there was nothing I wanted to do. There's nothing I... I'd ever wanted that I didn't have, uh, nothing. And it's kind of moving to me now. I remember thinking, that's it. I can end it here because I'm not necessary anymore. If I had any significance, it's in my legacy of stuff I've done people I've cheered up or whatever. You know, who knows what you do with your work? You know, you, you know when you do, like, stand-up and stuff, you go and do You don't know who you've touched in the audience, really. They applaud, they go home. Mm -hmm. There may be something that sticks in their mind about something you've said that makes a difference in their life, you know? And so I didn't, I didn't feel as though I had anything more of that to do. There's nothing more I had to tell you. There's nothing more I had to show you. I, I, in my head, I'd forgiven my family. That was kind of done. And I was in the shower, and I, I was just broke down. I just, I really just broke down. I thought, that's it, I'm done. 
And, I, and then your mind goes to even darker, deeper places. It's like, now, so how am I going to end this? What's the best way of doing it? Should I end uh, Do I have to close my bank accounts and stop my, my, my <laughs> Microsoft account? How responsible. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I am. I mean, I, you know, well, I had a friend, actually, I lived with for years uh, when I first came to L.A., and he, he had an aneurysm in his stomach. And the doctor said, oh, my God, this is touch and go. You may never come out of this. You know, you're 65 years old. The, the chances of you surviving are, are really remote. So once the operation date was fixed, he blows out all his credit cards. <laughs> he maxes out his credit cards on everything. He goes to Hawaii, has the best time, and then he pulls through. And he has massive debts, and he had to sell like his house and everything. Um, I just wanted to do everything in a really ordered way and just make it, uh, for people who are around me and love me and whatever, just make it easy for them. So wait, he died, your friend? He's uh, he's still alive. well. He may be dead now. That was years ago. But he but he survived the operation, <laughs> and he had to pay off all the debt. It was horrible. But um, no, so I, that was it. Really, it was just a, I got to that low point, and then I thought, okay, if I'm going to survive, I have to figure this out. And I was actually on a boat in Austria. We'd gone on vacation because this is like my last vacation. We'd already booked this thing, so there's no way, as you know, I'm not going to take a trip. So I go on this boat, and everybody downstairs playing cards or whatever the hell they were doing and drinking. And I lay uh, face up on the roof. What, I don't know what the nautical term for the roof of a boat is, but it's like I was, on, I was lying on the, on the roof. I don't either. No, <laughs> no, I, look, I look to you to know those kind of things. But, but I, I, looked at it, I looked up at the sky. It was like a completely clear sky. We are outside Vienna. And I look up at the sky... And I'm thinking, I have no significance. You know, like, when you get into this kind of mood, have you, yeah. you ever had this kind of mood where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm not important, nobody loves me, total like self-pity. But I thought, I'm not significant. Look how big the universe is. And here's me sobbing about what a useless like creating I am. And um, I realized at that point that I knew things from all my travels, from talking to all these thousands of people about life, throughout my career, I knew things. Added to my mother's stuff that she was always kind of foisted on me from Reader's Digest. Like, don't go on roller coasters after you're 50 because it'll break your retinas in your eyes. <laughs> stuff like, you know, useful stuff like that. And so I thought, I'll write it down. I'll put it in a book as a lesson to me. Fuck everybody else. Just to me mm -hmm. of why I'm valuable. Sure, so you, you basically... Well, this was just for yourself? It was initially just for myself. And I wrote it down, and I thought, oh, my God, what a boring book. It's just a lecture to, to me about why I matter. And so then I, I turned it into a kind of like a novelistic form, so it had a, at least a story to it, so you could, it would carry you forward. And then it all went in. Everything went in. And that's the one I'm reading. And that's the one you're reading. Yeah. And honestly, once I'd written it, it was a, a reason to stay alive. Because I realized by the time I'd done it, and it's, I mean, it's full, it's crammed full of everything I've ever learned about God and life and the universe and everything. And I realized at the end of it that what my place was at the table. And it wasn't this place I've been trying to earn all these years of, please listen to me, please give me validation, please love me, please give me your attention. Mm -hmm. I'll do anything to get your attention, including behaving badly, I'll do anything. And now I realize it wasn't about that at all. It was crazy. It was about um, being of service to people in some kind of way. And if more people, I think, either at times of despair or even when they're just confused about what they're supposed to be doing or feeling that their career isn't going somewhere. Instead of thinking, what about me? They just said, what about other people? And started giving service to people. 
Because you can run out work. of what about me, like what happened to you, but you can never run out of what about oh, everybody Oh, people else. are very needy. <laughs> You'll never run out of people who need food or need a helping hand. It, but it's true. Service to the world as opposed to... It's funny. Like you really did take care of everything for yourself. Yeah. You know, you, you, you used the, that story you even said with the, with the castle in Vienna. Yeah. You used every resource to take care of satisfying every physical desire or whatever you had materialistic desire and once you ran out of them all it wasn't until then that you realized all right well uh, check me off the list <laughs> yeah there are other people in the world besides me i maybe never I'll, realized maybe well, i'll move on to someone else now well i was under this really weird illusion which i think a lot of people are that if you're just being funny which I was, I mean, it was like funny reporting. It was like, I always had experiences. Like I go to, I go to Austria for a ski, free ski trip I went on. And we found, I was always carrying a tape recorder with me everywhere I went in case something happened and I'd put it on the radio. Uh-huh. And like, for example, there would be a, um, uh, a pubic hair in the butter <laughs> in the morning when I got up for breakfast. We had a whole thing about this. Just laugh at the way you said pubic hair in a butter. Oh, in the butter. There's a pubic hair in the butter. In the butter. Uh, But there was a pubic hair in my butter. And and that led to a whole investigation in the hotel, which I recorded. And And then there was another time when I got to Monte Carlo on that trip. And there was, uh, I got into this fancy schmancy hotel room and there were people in the bath next door having sex. And so I fed my microphone cable under the adjoining door as far as it would go and recorded them having sex. But it was all like, it, I, I, I was under this illusion, this crazy misapprehension that if I just enjoyed myself, listeners would think it's great and they'd get some kind of benefit from it. And it was only later on that I realized that no. <laughs> No, not really. It's about them. It's ephemeral what they get out of it. I was getting all this pleasure for me. And it just felt so wrong. And then I realized if I could write books that help other people, like The Believing Book, has helped thousands of people. That's great. Now Maybe I it was so- very uninspired sex they were having. That would bring everybody down. <laughs> your, your future keep going, like- keep going. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not giving back anything with this. <laughs> exactly. Well, it was just, it was just, yeah, the whole thing was just like a, a, an epiphany that, oh my God, the world does not revolve around me. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a look at our philosopher here. Can I just say one of the funniest things about this podcast as a listener? Because I don't know the mechanics of it before today. I didn't know how you did this. It was that you could never produce, given that it's a show about philosophy, you could never pronounce the names of the philosophers. I'm yelling at my phone going, Wittgenstein, it's Wittgenstein, it's Nietzsche, or whatever it was. You, you got so many wrong. It's so, and, and then you so gleefully progress throughout the entire podcast getting them wrong. Yeah. It, was, it was fantastic. <laughs> well... It's just one of the many little things we pepper in for the I know, audience. For, for variety, the fact that it, 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 <laughs> ignorance have, is far better. Now I have Alex write the pronunciations. So oh, really? You see in parentheses phonetic? right there, I have a, to prevent that from happening in so the future. So who's mine, then? We're going to be talking about Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer. Well, I Schweitzer. Was, uh, Did I say it right with the pronunciation here? Well, is he German? Schweitzer. Schweitzer or Schweitzer? Schweitzer. Schweitzer, okay. Schweitzer. Yeah. Schweitzer. Schweitzer. Oh, Schweitzer. my God, you got it right this time. <laughs> But he, but he's the, is he the guy who invented pasteurization? No, I'm not sure yet. We'll see. We'll see in a second. What you have in common with him is that you wrote the book "Why Your Life Matters," and so Alex says he picked a philosopher who talks. 
about exactly that. Oh, good. Schweitzer. Schweitzer? Schweitzer. There's there's three very slow... <laughs> well, no, you're not, actually not pronouncing up. them differently. You're just Schweitzer. doing them in different Schweitzer. volumes. Schweitzer. Schweitzer thinks... <laughs> Damn it, you've got me. Schweitzer thinks Western society is crumbling because it's forgotten about the reverence for life. Human consciousness is such that we are aware of the will of other creatures to live. Wow. That's exactly what we were talking about, right? Exactly. Human consciousness is such that we are aware of the will of other creatures to live. To do this right, we must be kind, because kindness is the root of prolonging life. Reality is ethically neutral. So if we do not take matters into our own hands, no one will be helped, which is what you were talking about doing service. Exactly. Yeah, but it's not even just service. That's also kindness and compassion to animals and to something smaller than yourself that can't fight back. Any one of us could strangle a cat. Why? Because the cat is smaller than us. But it but how much nicer to be kind and and to people. I'm glad you went with cat and not dog. I got two dogs running around. I know better than to do that. There are dogs running around the house. I'm not stupid. But, but you know, any one of us could do harm to another. Uh-huh. I mean, I could find a way to wound you relatively easily, I guess. I mean, and you could do the same to me. Uh-huh. But how much nicer if we're civil and kind and compassionate and try to get along. And people just don't realize. Some people really like to fight. Nice is nice. <laughs> I think no, what we're saying nice is, is also a little bland, I have to say. It's nice to be nice. It's nice to be nice, but it's also uh, uh, fair to be fair. And, and, and it's, it's nice to be fair, kind. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, there's more. He said more. There's Schweitzer? more, there's more, there's more. Well, who is he? Do we know who he is? Schweitzer? Well, we'll find out in just a moment. Oh, okay. S- stay tuned. <laughs> to enact worldwide kindness, we must set the proper example, as this is the only way to make people act. As this is the only way to make people act, or yes. to make people act, to this make people do things. what we were saying before. Yeah. It's like be, uh, be a. Oh no, it, I was saying I didn't say it before. I said it before the podcast. But it, it's like people say, it's like be the light, be the beacon, be the one who sets the example and lives the life of honesty and truth and compassion and kindness. Do that. Be loving and see everybody else will be glue, will, will, will will be attracted to you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you... That's what I think he's saying, right? I think. Yeah, Am I, I right? Think, I Whereas so. if you just go through life and are unkind... Set the proper example, yeah. Yeah. Be, be, be the guy. And be the guy. Be the guy. No, but, but be... be. <laughs> going to be the guy. It sounds so uninspired. We practically got an album here. Yeah. <laughs> Today I'm going to be the guy. Be the, no, but be, but, you know, be the guy. <laughs> be the one who leads. Be the, be the shepherd, not the sheep, you know? Uh, yeah. Example is the proper method because the reverence for life is based on human connection and thus so is the solution. Right. And I never believed growing up or even like in my teens or during my journalistic, journalistic years that I needed you. Well, you didn't know me. You're taking me really literally right now, are you? Okay, let's just, I'm just going to pull back. I'm going to say, but I didn't need you as a human being because I didn't see the value of you. Uh-huh. Uh, all I needed was me, and I was self-sufficient. I didn't need you in any way as long as you were paying for my trips. and everything. Uh, Then I realized that actually I do need you because my life becomes enriched by knowing you. Because now you know me. Because I, well, my, rich, my life was enriched when I got an iPhone. I know what you're saying. I'm just I got teasing. an iPhone and yeah. I, I, I listened to his podcast and suddenly, you know, my life has changed. But it's true. Now but, I'm going to be the guy. Uh, now, now, now it's going to be hosted by me from now on. This, you're not going to get a look in. But it's true. You know, be, be the guy who, who 
I can't, that is really deep. Just be the guy just who be loves the guy, him. man. Yeah. <laughs> you, you hey, got, man, just be the guy, man. We got to have T-shirts, mate. <laughs> be the guy, man. Be the guy is, is a good philosophy. <laughs> All right, here, I'll tell you a little bit more about Mr. Schweitzer. 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 Albert Schweitzer. I'm sure he invented penicillin or something or... He lived from January 14th, 1875 to September 4th, 1965. He was a German and later French. How do you do that? Albert Schweitzer. <laughs> and later, he was a German and later French. He just switched over. He just got sick of the German, Germans invading countries and just went to a different one. <laughs> I'm not German anymore. <laughs> do you hear me? Just so as you know. I'm not German anymore. It took well, a little ad out in the paper. It's like, you know. Well, that's cool. What are you? French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, really bad choice, you know. I guess that's a step up. <laughs> you know, you're not. <laughs> well, you know, I put an ad in the paper when I had my midlife crisis. Uh-huh. It's the one in, in the book. And it goes, um, I, I put a thing in the, in the LA Weekly that just goes, uh, lost soul seeking something to believe in. Uh, at a crossroads in life, if you know more than I do, please get in touch. I put that in the LA Weekly for two weeks. And I was inundated with people who knew more than I did. Really? Yeah, inundated with people replying. I got my, my voice box thing on, on, on the phone was full of people telling me what the answer to life was. You mean the answer, the voicemail? Yeah, well, yeah, the voicemail. Voice box is different. Well, whatever that thing is. It's a P.O. Yeah. box kind of voicemail thing. Right, right. And it was full of people telling me. And they'd lay it out in like 15-minute messages of really? what they thought life was about. Yeah, in response to my ad because they all felt sorry for me. Wow. Sorry, that's nothing to do with Schweitzer. No, no, it's like, it's, you, but I'm, but it, it's I'm, like an I'm ad in the paper saying I'm now French. That's a lot of people who, who were giving back. There's a <gasps> lot of people who were being the guy. Huh? Wouldn't it be great if we put an ad somewhere just said, I'm now French. <laughs> Danny LaBelle would like to announce that he's now French. I'm now French, okay? So, uh, <laughs> that he's not German anymore. Please, he's uh, I was American, now I'm... Uh, Danny LaBelle, born American, later French. <laughs> I'm uh, now a French, uh, read enough French philosophers. Uh, it will happen maybe for you sometime, I don't know. And there'll be a podcast in like 40 years' I time where they pronounce you Danny Lobel. I don't know if it will really happen for you, but it might. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you believe, if you are going to be the guy. You're going to be the guy? Be? I have guy? this t-shirt, uh, mate. Would you like to wear it? French always sound like they're really unsure. Eh? If you want to uh, yeah. be the guy, eh? I don't know. I know, it's like everything is a hint and a suggestion. Yeah, Nothing they, is actually a fact. You should like... just say, I don't know, after, do you want to, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I want to eat uh, the cheese? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Giraffes? <laughs> Giraffes have the long necks? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they do, I think. I don't know. <laughs> so they're just a complete non-committal country. They just never want to commit to anything. <laughs> so it was a German and later French. Uh, yeah, he's later French. So went on a huge tangent there. He's later or, French. Or, organist. Oh. Philosopher. Physician. And medical missionary in Africa. Isn't everybody a philosopher, really? You've only got to say, like, we said be the guy today. That makes you... A philosopher. Hey, man, we're all philosophers. Exactly. <laughs> Bloody Schweitzer, he know nothing. <laughs> also known for his historical work on Jesus. He was born in the province of Alsace... Alsace-Lorraine, yes. Yeah, Alsace-Lorraine. That's why he left. It was easier to pronounce <laughs> French things. And... <laughs> <laughs> just, he really didn't swap countries, he just swapped languages. At that time, part of the German Empire, he considered himself... He considered himself French and wrote mostly in French. 
Schweitzer, a Lutheran, challenged both the secular view of Jesus as depicted by historical critical methodology currently at this time in certain academic circles, as well as the traditional Christian view. He received the 1952 Nobel Peace Prize for his philosophy of reverence for life, expressed in many ways, but most famously in founding and sustaining the Albert Schweitzer Hospital in, how do you say it? Lambe. I'm going to put my glasses on each time we do this. <laughs> Just leave them on. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave my glasses on so I can help you through this. But he, but he funded a hospital, so there's a reason for that. Yeah, in You Lam- don't get a hospital through being like stuff about Barnin. Jesus. I think, I think you're right. It sounds like he, he was the penicillin guy to me. I remember the name. Oh, Wasn't he up against a guy named Jonah something? Um, Albert Schweitzer Hospital in Lambarene. Now in Gabon, West Central Africa. You're well-traveled. You should be able to read these words more than me. Yeah, he studied the music of German composer Johann Sebastian Bach and influenced the organ reform movement. Orgelbewegung. What does that mean, Orgelbewegung? I can pronounce that. It doesn't mean I I know what it means. Let's take a look at medicine. After the age of 30 in 1905... Schweitzer answered to the call of the Society of Evangelist Missions of Paris, which was looking for a medical doctor. However, the committee of this French missionary society was not ready to accept his offer, considering his Lutheran theology to be incorrect. He could easily have obtained a place in German evangelical mission, but he wished to follow the original call despite the doctrine. Let's see, controversy and criticism. Schweitzer considered his work as a medical missionary in Africa to be his response to Jesus' call to become fishers of men, but also a small re, what, recomp, recompense? Recompense? Is that how recompense. You recompense? Yeah. How, That's reward. I think, I think in America we'd call it recompense. Sounds like you're pronouncing it too well. Here's the controversy. Oh. Uh, he was, Schweitzer was nonetheless still sometimes accused of being uh, paternalistic, I guess going from the father paternalistic a colonialist and colonialist. racist in his attitudes towards africans so why did he go to africa to help people was it only white people and then in some ways his views did differ from that of many liberals and other critics of colonialism for instance he thought gabonese independence came too early we all did uh, without <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, you and i could argue about this for a very long time <laughs> At least, at least a month early, without adequate education or accommodation for, to local circumstances. Edgar Berman quotes Schweitzer as having said in 1960, no society can go from the primeval directly to an industrial state without losing the leavening that time and agricultural period allow. Right. What does that mean? Well, it means basically you can't just go from being a, uh, a primitive type person with no knowledge of anything and, and living in the fields to um, being an industrial nation. You have to have that kind of simmering period in the middle where um, you, you, you go through agriculture and you go up to the next stage, which after that, mechanical stuff and then industrial stuff. And there's like a progression. So that's racist? Is that, is that what they're saying? That's racist because they're saying you can't... These people are barbarians. They can't just become civilized. Yeah, but everybody before 1950 was racist. My father still calls um, black people darkies. To this day, he calls them darkies, and and uh, and homosexuals are poofs. Right. You know, he's he still as a part of his natural conversation because he's like 90 years old. So everybody before 1950 thought that Johnny Native 
should be kept down. And Johnny, and if you ever saw like children's books uh-huh. from the 1950s or 60s, um, uh, anybody from like a country like Africa was always with bones through her nose and carrying spears and always dressed in little grass skirts mm-hmm. because that's what they were. You know, that's, how, that's what they were in the popular, right. popular perception and that's what he reflect, reflected. So he was just a guy of his time. He was just a guy. Not enlightened, just a... No, he was the guy, he was the guy with... who went... Because, you know, the, he, he, well, the British did this a lot. I don't know about the Germans or the French, but the British were, were notorious for going to other countries, like in Africa, and saying, hello, everybody. Now, come on, bring me tea and bring me... The... And they were just... That's paternalistic, where they go in and they trample on your culture. And, you know, I don't even like the name of your country. Let's call it something else. What about... Yeah. And then they come up with, like... They call whole islands like commitment. I love the island, the island of commitment. That's what, and then they just leave, and they convert you to Catholics. You be Catholic, and then you, they'd rename your island and leave, or maybe kill your wives or rape your wives. And that's what we did for centuries. The British were notorious. The Dutch were like that, and the Spanish. Yeah. They just went across the world to different countries. And instead of going like we would now, wow, what fascinating cultures, and I wonder what they have to offer us. What knowledge do they know about spirituality and God and the universe? We go, burn this place. You know, this yeah. is in 1950, burn this place, and uh, everybody should now wear suits and, and, and bring me tea. We want tiffin. That's how the British were for years. Even when I was a kid, they were like that. Yeah, I like it. I, I, I'd love if they came back and they go, we couldn't commit to commitment. We changed <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can, can we stick with commitment for like a, a four weeks? And they then we changed. They keep changing the name of commitment. I <laughs> can't commit. But they did do that to islands. Yeah. I mean, they've got some really weirdness, like constipation islands. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll call it, uh, what, 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 what? Oh, <gasps> constipation. Let's do that. And off they go and they just leave. And then suddenly it would be a flag saying That's constipation. Just the result of the, what the water did to them or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that the, it's the British and the Spanish who dropped the maps. It's not uh, like the primitive people they left behind. So you'd be in a map, and then everybody would arrive and call it Constipation Island. Maybe the map makers have a lot more power than I ever thought of. Oh, incredible. You, whoever names the place gets to... I could just draw a map of the whole world and say it's all America. Yeah, but nobody's going to believe you a- now. Well, they, they, America's <laughs> tried that. It basically, just ended up in a lot of wars. Yeah. All right, well, here we go. we got a paragraph. You want to read yeah. for us there? Affirmation of the world, which means affirmation of the will to live that manifests itself around me is only possible if I devote myself to other life. From an inner necessity, I exert myself in producing values and practicing ethics in the world and on the world, even though I do not understand the meaning of the world. For in world and life affirmation and in ethics, I carry out the will of the universal will to live, which reveals itself in me. I live my life in God, in the mysterious divine personality, which I do not know as such in the world, but only experience as mysterious will within myself. There was a thing recently where Stephen Fry, the comedian in Britain, I know of him, made yeah. news all over the world by having a huge tussle, a huge argument with this Irish TV presenter called Gay Byrne, I think his name is, about uh, God. And Gay Byrne goes, well, when you get to the pearly gates, what do you say to God? And Stephen Fry said, you're a stupid uh, individual. How dare you inflict so much pain on the world? And uh, they talked basically about how God was selfish and there could possibly not be any God because how would anybody who creates the human race and the world be so selfishly vicious to, the, to his creations? And it really blew my mind because after all these years, what they're still arguing about... And what Schweitzer, 
is denying um, is that God is still a man in the sky with a beard. That there's, God is some external creation, some external agency who impacts your life with judgments. He's waiting for you to ensnare you after you die or to condemn you to some uh, eternal damnation. This is just made up. What actually is true, and what he's trying to say in this very, very complicated quote, what he's trying to say is that God is within, not without. So if you are trying to beseech some external agency to come to your rescue, like a white knight, that's never, ever going to happen. This is why everybody's so confused. God is, is, is neutral. God is impartial. God is everywhere. We are God. It's inside us. And you, 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 the, the idea is not to pray to God, to worship God, to beseech God. The idea is to be God. Be Jesus. Be whatever holy person you want to name. It doesn't matter. Be that person of light of kindness, compassion, all the things we were just talking about, be love, and be that person so that you exude it, and that's how you make the connection with other people. That is you being God-like, that's you being a child of God. It's all within, and that connection that he's talking about, it comes through me identifying the same part of you that is in me, the splinter of light, the splinter of the divine. I mostly see it the same way, for the, for the most part, yeah. Yeah, but what confuses it is, is religion, and dogma and all these other things, which say and try to get you to believe and have done way beyond when Commitment Island belonged to the natives or whatever. It, it's, they're trying to get you to believe that you are separate from God. And if you're separate from God, you are subject to his whim, his will, his judgment, and so on. And the truth is that all your problems and all the confusions and all the ambiguities of life and religion and everything else come from that one fallacy that you are separate from God. If you do the other way around and go, no, God is within me and I am a creature of God. Well, just, well one more, just right. to the end of the sentence. But if, if, you, if you go with that way and say, I'm a creature of God, I am God, God is within me, then you find God. And it's within, not without. That's yeah, what I that think That makes sense. I mean, I don't, I don't know if, uh, if it's just the way you put it. I wouldn't say that we are God, but I'd say that we're, there's a piece of God in all of us. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. So basically, uh, if you, uh, we talked earlier, you read about de uh, consciousness. Mm -hmm. Say we redefine God or just re rename it the way the British did with all these islands. We go and say, you know, God is now our territory and we're going to stop using the word God, actually, because it's, 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 it's just like you name a creature in a zoo. You know, like, well, let's, not, let's stop thinking of an external being. And we go, no. No more God, we call it divine consciousness, a splinter of which is inside all of us. It's our chip. It's our thing. And connecting to God is trying to go back to the mothership of it. You know? Exactly. And it's a deconstruction. And this is why in, in, in my book, not to plug my book, but in my book. Plug the what, book. It's called, no, no but I'm, I'm, I'm really serious about this because what I, what, what I laid down in the book and what I thought was true just from interviewing all these people was that what you're looking for is not happiness in life. People go, oh, I just want to be happy. No, you don't. You want to be whole. And you, had, you hit that one in chapter one. Right. And it continues through the or book. Maybe so it was you, in the kind introduction. You've kind of blown it already. But, but it's, no, but you are trying to be whole. And it's in what, the introduction. Right. But what the book is about and what life is about, I believe, is removing the obstacles to wholeness, the things that make you Un, uh, not happy, things that make you not whole. And so all the things of your life, all the wounds you've, you've had over the years, all the problems you've faced, everything, they all are like negative charged memories in your mind. 
and in your in your emotions in your body and i think if you remove those if you deconstruct those you move closer to wholeness closer to god not perfection but god, you know to wholeness closer to your part of god and you you open up yourself to greater inflows of divine consciousness and that's when you become happy because it's a byproduct of wholeness Mm-hmm. So what he's saying, I think, if I've got this right, <laughs> he's probably turning in his grave right now in France or wherever he's buried. Um, he, he, what he's saying is that the, if you're just kind and loving, which is really what it's all about, you know, people go, oh, Jesus is with me. Um, Jesus, thank you. I beseech Jesus to come and do this. Instead of worrying about Jesus, this external agency, mm-hmm. be Jesus be the very be the guy. Be be the guy. This is our <laughs> philosophy. Everybody with a kind of belief system at its root believes the same thing: love, kindness, compassion. Treat everybody like you would like to be treated, and you'll kind of be fine. And that's all you got to do. And that's what Schweitzer, bless his heart, for being <laughs> a racist, colonialist pig. He didn't quite get it. He, he didn't, didn't get he, that he, bit. He said it, but he didn't quite follow <laughs> it. Yeah, but he said it, it, and then he goes and kind of law, b- b- is paternalistic to all right. these natives in these lands. But let's just say that he had a, a later on he learned a lesson, mm-hmm. and that's the lesson I think he's teaching. Ideally, he's uh, oh the Nobel Peace Prize. I know they've given it to a lot of people who. <laughs> who've got a lot of hate in their heart. <laughs> well, yeah, enough, I know, so. exactly. It's kind of misguided, but you could give the Lobel Peace Prize, which is to <laughs> only people who would get that they've got to be the guy. Yeah, the Lobel Peace Prize, That's- the only Peace Prize where you pay me. <laughs> where well, you actually pay for it, <laughs> and we give it to you anyway. Come on, folks, I need the money. <laughs> that should be your thing at the end of your podcast you should actually give the uh, the award the Lobel Peace Prize to anybody who just People, buys your oh, favors god no I didn't get the Lobel Peace Prize <laughs> this week <laughs> the worst bill that came in the <laughs> this is how you pay your bills we have an entire movement already it. stirring here uh, let's do the quotes we're stirring souls okay Quotes, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. You see, same thing. Yeah. Be the loving guy. Very repetitive, this guy. Yeah, I know. Schweitzer <laughs> probably only had like these three thoughts in his entire life. And the rest of the time, he was actually putting down natives in Africa. Uh, Gabon didn't know what had hit him when he, when he arrived. It's like, hello, yeah. everybody. <laughs> you, bring me tea. <laughs> uh, a man does not have to, this is another one. A man does not have to be an angel in order to be a saint. Yeah, that's probably true too. I mean, you yeah. know the thing is that Mother Teresa goes, everybody goes, well, you know, I'm not Mother Teresa, meaning I'm not pure and I'm lo- uh, 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 selflessly loving. I heard that Mother Teresa was an absolute cow. <laughs> I I don't know, maybe I read that wrong, but I, I, somebody told me that she was actually really an evil bitch and, um, and, and that she was nothing, you know, all that other stuff was just PR. <laughs> She, I don't know. She was she was like a satellite of the, of the Catholic Church, and, and and really, although she did all that kind of like, uh, so what have you got then? Okay, you know, give this person water and all. This yeah. is what I heard, and that she was actually an absolute cow. Uh, but I could be wrong about that. Don't absolute cow. I like that. Probably that would mean something different to Indians. Then they'd be like, oh yeah, she was an absolute cow. <laughs> she was an absolute cow. We loved her, and she didn't. She wasn't no angel, but we made her a saint. Yeah, and that, that might be his justification for being a racist. He's like, hey, I'm not an angel, but I'm still a saint. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I've I've laid waste to all these territories, and uh, yeah. this is probably what ISIS would say. You know, these are these absolute horrible terrorists. They go, well, you know, we're 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 not we're not perfect. <laughs> you know, we're only slaughtering hundreds and hundreds of people. We're not, but, but but you know, God will love us when we get. That's the example of separation from God, right there. Mm-hmm. They go, well, God will approve of this because we're getting rid of infidels. Now, infidels are made up. 
In everyone's life, at some this is a new one. In everyone's life, at some time, our inner fire goes out. It is then burst into flame by an encounter with another human being. We should all be thankful for those people who rekindle the inner spirit. Now, that's true, too. That's your ad in the LA Weekly right there. It is, but it's also, I really believe that we have, um, like, uh, real destiny points in life where we are selflessly involved in something that comes about in spite of ourselves. So we meet somebody and we smile at them or say something wise or whatever else comes comes about, who knows. Um, but And you've changed a life at that point and you may not even know it. I, I was in Trader Joe's and I was like packing my bags, right? Yeah. And uh, and this, uh, I'm sort of loading my bags up and the woman behind the checkout thing goes to me, you don't remember me, do you? Because you never like to say that to anybody that, no. You know, I've, I have no idea who you are, but I really kind of just said, I'm sorry, I really don't. And she goes, you did my handwriting a few years ago. You analyzed my handwriting. I said, okay. And was it right? She said, oh, my God, it changed my life. So you, so, so that's the thing I wanted to ask you really briefly. Uh, All right. I'll, I'll let you finish the story. Go on. No, but, but, then, but that's, that's true a lot of times. People will write to me and say, yeah, like, I wrote a book called Gullible's Travels. This is like, uh, you know, based on those museums I went around or all yeah, those terrible yeah. museums. I wrote a book about it. And, and you, you just put it out there. And this um, uh, guy, it, was, it wasn't a woman, this guy wrote to me, uh, maybe two years later, possibly. And there'd been some kind of tsunami, one of these great tsunamis that wipes out entire villages and, and destroys countries and stuff. Really serious. And he wrote to me. He said his mother was upstairs in this hotel or whatever, and the tsunami came, and she was completely marooned. There was no way out. The whole place was wrecked. She couldn't get out. She was completely trapped where she was in her hotel room for days. Luckily, the room service was Luckily, phenomenal. Luckily, the room service was not fucked up, and they actually came. <laughs> but but you know, she had a mini bar, and she had, the, she had planter's peanuts, and yeah. that was it. And, um, and she, she had a copy of my book, Gullible's Travels. Wow. And he said that got her through. That tough time, she just read it. She'd taken it on vacation with her to read, and that got her through the, the trying time when she was stuck in her hotel room. It helped her survive. That's fantastic. No, but it po- proves my point. That it's, it's almost nothing to do with me, that. that story, I mean, that's just something she... It could have been any book she had. Um, but, but, but The worst-case scenario of that story would have been, you know, my mother was marooned in a hotel. There was a tsunami. She couldn't leave for a week. She had a copy of your book, and she absolutely hated it. And she threw herself off the It was the worst part of the vacation. She decided there was no point in surviving after that and threw herself out of the hotel window. (laughs) The tsunami was bad. The book book is what really got... (laughs) It actually saw her off. (laughs) And I'm right to tell you that my mother's dead because of you. Um, Although, actually, we're having that with the with the with the TV show. Uh, You know, we visited 32 locations, and at least half of them have been destroyed since we were there. Uh, The house that we filmed in in Japan was hit by that earthquake thing, and it's lying on its side. Uh, A a house that we filmed in uh, Louisiana was destroyed in uh, Katrina. Now I regret bringing you here. I know. Wait till the whole place is going to fall down. Wait till there's an earthquake this afternoon. Oh my God! Um, I hope not. But anyway, so what what we're talking about? So. So, uh, oh, I want to get back to the handwriting. Yeah, so so that's what the woman says. You know, basically, you've changed my life with that handwriting thing. And so uh, it's you reach out with that, and you become this agent of good in yeah. your, in life. And that's what the handwriting thing does very often. You so, don't know these people; you just send it off in the mail, and they um, they benefit from it. Part of the reason that we met is through Kelly Carlin, right? And uh, part of the reason you you met her is because you did somebody's handwriting. 
uh, analysis and, and then she a, had a, a friend of hers, and then done. you did her handwriting yeah. analysis. So through people's handwritings, you, you meet people <laughs> through. Yes, <laughs> through, you only through, have my word for the fact that it changed their life. Right. I could just be making that up, but, but but what I hear constantly is that oh my god, she Kelly wrote to me. She just sent an, an email, I think, or a tweet, or whatever it was. Just two words: holy shit. Yeah, that was it about I, the handwriting. So, so I wanted to ask you, what is there to the handwriting analysis? Or? Well, the, the, you see, the thing is, I was never trained in it, and um, it just was something I could do, and I've done it for like twenty-five years. I, I, I had a breakdown. <laughs> Another one? And no, this is a different <laughs> breakdown. This was an induced breakdown at a, at a this seminar. This one was on the side of the highway. Nice. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I hit a bus shelter <laughs> and uh, I hit a bus stop and uh, my whole life collapsed. No, no, I, I, I was in this workshop and they induced this breakdown. Uh, this was in my 30s. And um, it, all this stuff flooded in. And at, for about two weeks afterwards, if I looked at a piece of handwriting, the letters got up and kind of moved around on the page which was freaky, and I thought, oh my God, I've really got a problem here. I really was gonna go and see a doctor about this, because if things are moving, you know you've got a problem. That's not real, yeah. you know, nobody does that. And what happened was, uh, a friend of mine who was a graphologist said, well, just use it and just write about it and, you know, do it and see what you do. And I said, well, you know, you're the graphologist, you're trained, I cannot do this. She goes, no, 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 just try it and see what happens. You know, what? It's just us two. How can it possibly fail? And so I did. And she gave me a Christmas card that a friend had sent her. I knew nothing about this friend whatsoever. And she gave me the Christmas card. It was one of those that says, hi, had a great year. One of the kids graduated. You know, those kind of boring things. Mm -hmm. And I was able from this Christmas card to speak for 40 minutes about this friend and her life and how her marriage was on the rocks and it was all a lie she was perpetrating and whatever. Wow. And um, my friend at the end said, uh, there you go. That's all completely true. Everything you've said is just true. And so it took me years and wow. years and years before I even had the confidence to say to you, hey, I'll, I can do your handwriting. Because who am I? You challenge me and go, you're not trained. I go, game's up. You're right. But mm -hmm. it just meant to something to so many people. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I've never had it done myself, so I don't know what it's like to have it done, but I know the reaction from people. It depends on you. It depends on the kind of person. God, here's the thing about men, right? I'm going to tell you something about men. men women, if I do the handwriting of a woman, mm -hmm. generally speaking, they go, wow. Well, they'll think about it for a while, maybe a couple of weeks or whatever. They go, wow, that, that's pretty, pretty accurate. Men go, hmm, it's 60% right. <laughs> and you go... So it's right for everybody but you, right? It's only 60% of you. And men are hunter-gatherers. They still have that thing of they can't give up control. Yeah. So they can never readily accept that you actually know them very well. They'll go, eh, well, it's... Uh, one guy, actually, on the radio, I never do it on the radio usually, but one guy said, you're 20% accurate. I said, seriously? Really? <laughs> the one time hey, I do it on the radio... That's pretty good, 20%. No, no, it's not. It's terrible. And I, but he said, well, I didn't... I, I said, you're saying right. that 80% of it was wrong. And he goes... I didn't say it was wrong. <laughs> and I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> so basically, anyway, so well, are we done with Schweitzer? We're done with Schweitzer. I, 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 I agree with him wholeheartedly. I think it's a really good choice, right? Yeah. 
I think he, I think he nailed it with this pick for the philosopher. I think it was exactly what you Absolutely were saying. Absolutely right. It's brilliant. So. I don't agree with his colonialization and his uh, paternalistic attitude towards natives, but I, 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 I mean, I identify it because I'm eighty percent. He's eighty percent right. Twenty <laughs> percent wrong. <laughs> well, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying that those were the times. It was really a pleasure having you here. Thank yeah, you thank for you coming. so much. This is like the fulfillment of a mini short-term dream that I had, yeah, and I'm you're so gonna, happy. <laughs> I'm afraid to help you fulfill your dreams. You're gonna have a, you know. What I'll tell you what I wish you another midlife crisis in ten years. You'll live longer that way. I go from crisis to crisis, and each time I live another ten years. I always think it's funny when people say I had a midlife crisis, and it's like, well, I guess you know how long you're gonna live. <laughs> how do you know it's a midlife crisis? Well, I'm clearly gonna live till I'm ninety because I had it in my fifties. So, so have another one in ten years. You'll live to a hundred. I know. Wouldn't that be great? Actually, no. Do you want? Do you really want to live to your hundred? Yeah, I don't know what's going to be going on and when I'm 100, so I can't answer that. No, right but now. within yourself, do you really want... I'm not Too bothered. long of a conversation. I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not bothered whether there are bloody flying cars or anything. I mean, do you, do you want to live to another, like, 80, what, 60 years or whatever? No. Well, I still have to pay rent. <laughs> no. <laughs> You'll be a huge success. The Danny LaBelle show oh, will, be, uh, will be on TV. You'll have made a fortune. Thank you so much for being here. It was You're really very welcome. I've pleasure. loved it. That's been the show. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks again to Cash Peters. Thanks again to Stand Up Records for sponsoring the show. Thank you once again to anybody who sponsored the show or has written in. If you want to write in, you could write in at thecomical at yahoo.com is my email address. Thecomical at yahoo.com. Write in and let me know what you think. Say hello. There's that. You could leave five stars and a nice comment on iTunes. That would be really, really helpful. I always ask for it, but I never push for it. But I got to push. I got to push because we need people to do that so we can climb climb the charts of iTunes, climbing those little squares on the podcast charts. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're little square images. Got to climb up the charts. Got to be visible so more people could find the show. You could share the show on your own social media. You could, uh, I, I don't know, you could invite me over for dinner sometime. We could, we could go for a bike ride. We could do something together. Come on. Or you could donate to the show, or you could pick up Season 1 by clicking that icon, Buy Season 1 on moderndayphilosophers.net, where I share lots of fun photos from the show. They're really fun, man. I always think it's funny when people use the word fun. It's, it's real fun, man. I got some real fun photos on there. All right. That's enough from me. Thank you very much for tuning in. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.